Good evening, this is Dr. Danguera. This is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. This is the 15th of January, 2023. This will be Lecture 5 on my discussion of some aspects of epistemology and metaphysics in research science. So, I thought I'd start with a little bit of Latin. Scientia potentia est non fingo. Pocretuto potentia est amo. I'll tell you later if you don't know that translation, what I just put together for you. But right now, let me have you recall our earlier discussions about radiation and the electromagnetic theory, exactly the electromagnetic field theory, I should include. So, to generalize, when external radiation is directed at an atom, such that the frequency of that radiation matches and or exceeds the energy differential between the two stationary states, a physical transition will obtain. That means the energy of the atom may increase via, for example, the absorption of a photon, or the energy of the atom will decrease proportionally via the emission of a photon with, however, a defined angular momentum. So, to understand this, consider how light waves move at the same speed in a vacuum, such that the number of wave maxima passing at a given intercept in, say, one second, is determined by the wavelength. So, for a short wavelength, the numerical value of each maxima passing at a given point, as recognized as the frequency, will be higher, that is more frequent, the shorter the wavelength. Hence, the wavelength and frequency are inversely proportional. So, as per the equation, lambda v equals c, where lambda is the wavelength, v is the frequency, and c is, of course, the speed of light. So, it can be described in this way. These basic physical relationships function quite well, and they will predict the properties, some properties, of matter and light. With matter, then, the, uh, not, not matter itself, but as a stand-in for matter, an atom. Now, that's important for many reasons. There is no physical reality to matter. Matter is a universal term that describes all that has mass. And that includes, of course, everything that's made of atomic structures. But matter does not exist except in the mind. And so, does that mean it doesn't exist? I would say no, it exists, but it exists in a way that each component of matter in the physical world has to participate in what we're describing matter to be. And that's a kind of a sophisticated non-argument. So that's why I want to tear this apart for you so that you understand even the structure that the physicists want us to um, basically accept. Uh, 
of the universe. Even that structure, even such things as discussions of space-time, like I talked about last time, or matter and energy, that these, these are concepts. And so because they are concepts, we often treat them as if they are tangible, real, or that is substantive. But we know now that substances is not the, the stuff of the universe, but events. But are things like matter and energy events? Well, there's nothing that is just matter. You can't go into a laboratory and say, we're going to study matter. You're going to study the property of something that is a substitute for matter, such as some atomic structure, right? And so that's not matter, though, because matter is that which we describe all that has mass so obtains. And so you see the it, it sounds like a subtle difference, but a very significant one. So this is a way I think that I can tear apart um, Maxwell's arguments for the electromagnetic theory in such a way that it doesn't violate the mathematics, but it does ask questions about the re real qualities, quantities, relationships, and modalities of what we mean by electricity, magnetism, energy, and matter, okay? When we're thinking about the electromagnetic spectrum, for example, which is, of course, a way for us to describe light, wavelength, and frequency. So let me get back to this now. <clears throat> None of these electromagnetic radiation relationships could have predicted the uncertainty of the positions of electrons relative to their nucleus in an atom or anywhere in the universe with a plenum of atoms of differing mass. So this was observed when measuring how light travels near massive objects. Amazingly, light bends around such objects because of gravity, another one of those terms in physics here. So these observations and the understanding of the wave-particle duality and the space-time relativity and the uncertainty, is quantum mechanics now, of the position that's all part of now what's considered a general modern quantum theory. Notice how the metaphysics of the 18th century, vid supra Kant, that clearly defines how space and time are not objective realities, fits very well with quantum theory from modern physics. In both endeavors of human reason and experience, the conclusion is the same. The form of the universe is relative to the individual's experience and not the other way around. So the universe isn't giving, given as we perceive it. We give what we perceive to the universe. 
in our way of describing it via our experiences, be they simple sense data, such as color or shape, or the measurements that are done in quantum mechanics, in wave fields. So, of course, time can easily be accounted for as minus t or plus t. In a statistical mechanics and quantum mechanics equation. So we need not move our electron only forward in time, but equally backward. But we as conscious agents macroscopically experience only positive time. Now, perhaps this means nothing to everyday existence. Yet, we can be convinced it is just so because of laws of physics seem to take us there. So another paradox, perhaps. Right? Now, it is another case at least that we can say this. Perhaps this means nothing except that we believe what we cannot experience. So we can deduce that there is no certainty at a quantum level. Now, this is almost a certainty. Hmm. So this is becoming very common another so-called paradox. And although we pretend to believe it, there is no epistemological causal continuum. To describe what we're saying does exist for what our experiences will allow. Okay. So this is something that we just automatically do if we're studying, say, physics, or if we want to take into account all of what modern physics tells us. But it doesn't take a quantum argument to convince us that nothing is certain at even the macro level. It's inappropriately considered probabilistic. This is one of my premises. Seemingly, that's good enough to write essays in metaphysics and even give biochemistry lectures and unapologetically age with grace. However, certainty tries to occupy a sovereign domain in the enterprise of science, where physics and chemistry and even the rebel renegade youthful offender biology get to sit together at the table. Now, let's step back. What of human understanding? Well, that's where this all gets started. So for us to be able to understand why we accept what we cannot experience, we should examine more closely what we mean by human understanding. <clears throat> now, at this point, 
I, I almost seem to be arguing that time and space are how we view the world, not how the world is. Or if it is, we still can't seem able to isolate what I'm calling a priori transcendentals from our observable world. And I am arguing that space and time are not what the world is. It's how we interpret the world, how we interpret the world. Okay? So the true nature, because of these arguments I'm making, is not probabilistic, but rather possibilistic. And therefore, as I said several lectures ago, uncertain certainties. Now, in the metaphysical sense, I can't see how we can avoid that premise. We have no empirical knowledge concerning the source of what we call casually space-time. We only have the internal sway of our mind. We cannot see the nature of this window, this lens, this window, because we're always viewing from it. So how can we say space and time are external when we can't get outside to find out? I don't see, pun intended, how you can find some event when you are you when what you're using to find it with is what you really want to examine. What you're using are your sensoria as developed then and obtained as phenomena. Such is the issue with time. If time is sequential and internal to the individual, as I've suggested and argued for, then trying to generate a rational cosmology on the nature of the universe requires an examination of its origins relative to matter in space, matter in space. So what can we do? Well, using computational infrared fluctuations along with visual measurements and, of course, all of our classical laws of physics and light in frame with quantum mechanical dynamics and the relativity of space with time. Current theory suggests, still suggests, quite strongly that there was what they call a Big Bang, some 14.3 or so billion years ago. Now, prior to that, we cannot obtain temporal or spatial signatures. And because of that, we cannot find foundational subparticle motion kinetics, which are all events. And then, of course, more trivially, the occurrence of photons. Yet, in the empirical sense, space and time still seem more protected. 
So we have a rule-governed law abiding universe full of mechanics, an electromagnetic spectrum, radioactive decay, and super collider-derived subatomic particle generation. Although it gets fuzzy, that means controvertible and ambiguous when you look at it closely or from very far away. So I say the joints and the corners where and when events obtain are measurable and to a close approximation, they may be predictable. But none of this equates to what is. So when you take metaphysics and physics together and you're trying to find a theory of how we experience the world, all we can do is make approximations in a possibilistic component series of uncertain certainties. So that sounds like a lot of jargon, a lot of words strung together, yet we live in the world. But we never spend the time to think about what we mean by the world when we are, for example, analyzing, after hypothetical deduction, the generation of experiments, the experiments conducted precisely, data obtained, data fractionated, and ultimately those observations, raw observations fractionated into what we call evidence to come up with conclusions on whether or not to support or reject the null hypothesis and then make that next induction, right? We never really say all of that practice that we do in science has a huge uncertain core because all of our methods are around all of our sensoria and all the all the different uh, means by which we generate all this evidence is just an extension of our sensoria. Remember, I made that argument two or three lectures ago. So all we're getting are approximations, which even the mathematics show are just approximations. So what is this? So what does this finally obtain? It obtains what I've been trying to argue, that when you talk about research science, because science by itself doesn't mean anything. Science means knowledge, right? Which uh, at the beginning of this talk, I, I was paraphrasing Hobbes there. Hobbes uh, famously said that uh, knowledge is power. And I say beauty is power because beauty is what is the essence of truth. So we observe beauty, which is, again, a phenomenological event. And we come to a conclusion that something is beautiful. Nature is beautiful. The working of an enzyme mechanism, to me, is beautiful. Uh, the complex signaling through a transduction cascade to generate the... Um, specific expression of genes after ligand binding to receptor and movement of that receptor through the cytoplasm to 
cause phosphorylation of other proteins that aggregate around what becomes a nascent transcription factor that then is trafficked into the nucleus and finds that region of the chromatin where those transcription factor components recognize and then bind to and then retailer the chromatin by shifting around and ultimately unwinding the double-stranded DNA and moving the histone complexes distal or proximal to sites of nation transcription. I find that beautiful. And we can describe all of that in great florid molecular detail. And it is our best way to describe it. But in the end, it is a narrative. Okay, it is what we are saying, this is our best attempt or one of our newer, better attempts in describing what goes on, for example, with gene expression after hormonal signaling. And it's a good approximation. It seems to function that way. But as a research scientist, I'm not going to then come out and say, well, that is exactly what's happening. It's only that we are able to piece together using experience and pure reason a mode to be able to examine this via correct judgments of reason. And this is the whole setup of the experiment to be able to come up with evidence that we then can test our hypothesis against. And that is exactly what we do. But beyond that, we're still in complete uncertainty because everything we're working with there, you know, space, time, energy, matter, all of those, all of those are terms and terms maybe you could even say are concepts, abstractions of reality for our faculty of understanding to find purchase to explore nature. Okay. So don't we need to justify and find truth in all of this? Because what we're ultimately saying with all of our research science is that we believe what we are describing as a component, a, an inner understanding of nature. Isn't that what knowledge is supposed to be, though? Knowledge is supposed to be justified true belief. So how do we justify these truths and then justify believing them and therefore creating nature? I mean, excuse me, creating knowledge of nature so that we can then profess it in the lecture hall. Right? How, where, is, where is the point where we can do this? So the question is, how do we justify? Because my argument as a research scientist, in everything we do, we don't really have controls. We have no way to compare this molecular landscape to another. And by the way, how do we show the so-called subject-object conformity? which is so important to rational, 
continental and empirical metaphysics. We need, at the very least, an Aristotelian demonstration that physical events conform to certain rules and their properties must be universal. We also need to show the physical world is necessary and not contingent. Otherwise, why is there physical is there a physical world? If we can't explain that, can't explain why, then what business do we have asking how? And this has something to do with cosmological origins and also evolutionary origins. So we can describe evolution of species. We think we can at some, at some level, but there are many, many, many flaws in the evolutionary tree of life. We try to use evolutionary principles and reasoning in understanding molecular evolution. So we, I talk a lot about domains and enzymes. You know, you have functional and structural domains. We used to also just simply talk about the sequence, right? The primary sequence of the protein is the amino acid sequence. And that's one component of the structure of the polypeptide that then ultimately confers secondary, tertiary, and there's more than a monomer, quaternary structures of proteins. Then we have to add in all those structural events with temporal events because we have to let the enzyme do its function, right? And that's all about kinetics and thermodynamics of enzyme reactions, enzyme catalyzed reactions. And so in doing all of those um, detailed accountings of uh, proteins and, pro and proteins as enzymes, as catalysts, what we're basically doing is attempting to afford our argument as a corner on reality. But where are the controls? Where is another universe or, an, or another ordered world where there are other molecular events going on that are not like the molecular events that we observe? That's one way of looking at it. And could we observe them because our sensoria, if you follow the dogma of materialism, are just linked to what is real to us, which is subatomic particle physics and elemental genesis and the production of molecules and molecules interacting with one another in space and time, generating ultimately uh, processes that then all of a sudden become living Right, with no that leap there, all of a sudden become living. There is no documented evidence what that event is, and it cannot be replicated. So that's one thing. We don't have a, a control that is unlike our universe. And the other problem is our sensoria itself. Wouldn't the uh, wouldn't you also need another control where another set of sensoria we're encountering? the same events that you encounter in our universe so that you could compare and contrast what the sensoria of another creature 
predicts out of the universe and compare that to our predictions and our evaluations and how they so obtain. So on either side of the issue, the observed and the observer, we don't have controls. That's an argument that you might be able to debate, but I don't see how. Because I'm not, I'm not coming up with this to be um, convoluted or just purely discursive or argumentative. I'm just coming out of empirical science. If we're really describing events in the natural world, we need good controls. And we don't have controls over the means by which we measure, you know, that transcendental of phenomenology. We don't have that because we're always measuring with the lens of our sensoria. And likewise, we don't have a, another type of molecular universe of which to explore with the sensoria we have so that we would know where, when, how, and maybe ask the big question, why? One system works one way and the other systems works another way, or does it? So we have to be able to, we have to be able to argue for that. So we need at very least that demonstration and we can't really do it. Okay. Where is the place we can find a causally closed universe? There are no empirical representations that demonstrate net universality or necessity. And the simplest way to put that is three words. All things turn, or all things are in flux, pantare, from the pre-Socratic Heraclitus. So I'll stop with that. I'm almost finished with this. I'm not going to be able to finish 